0: Hundred acre is a singular thing. We don't make second labels from it. Either makes the blend or it goes in the trash.
1: You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show.
2: Hello, welcome back to not just another episode of the Vint Podcast. This is a breaking news episode. We have a new collection launching this weekend of 100 acre Wraith bottles. And we have an interview with the CEO Landon Patterson that we would like to share with you all ahead of the launch. The collection includes five vintages of Wraith, which Wraith is one of their bottlings, as many of 100 acre is known for their single vineyard bottlings. Each vintage, however, they create a unique blend called Wraith, W-R-A-I-T-H. That is a blend of barrels from their top vineyards that are indicative of the vintage. So basically what they want to do is take a snapshot of each vintage and create the best wine possible from all of their vineyards. We have 2013 through 2017 in a vertical. This is as long as Wraith has been commercially released and there's many 100 point scores in there and Each year, as long as Wraith has been produced, it's been among one of the top scoring wines in all of Napa Valley. This is also the first vent collection that is sourced directly from the producer. We did have a futures offering with Joy Fantastic last year where we worked directly with the producer, but again, that was futures. This is Bottles that have basically just been stored at 100 Acre, very small quantities, and otherwise they're only available on allocation only to list members. These are some of the few left, especially from the earlier 2013-2015 vintages, all stored at 100 Acre since they were made, and we're really excited to offer it. So we wanted to share this interview with CEO Landon Patterson and give you all a little bit more background and information ahead of the launch of the collection. We hope you enjoy. Here's Landon Patterson. All right, we're here with a very special guest, Landon Patterson. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Landon.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Yeah,
2: of course. So, as we've mentioned in the Landon's intro here, he is now the CEO of Hundred Acre. Is it Estates? Is that what the Yeah, company is? our
0: the name of our company is called Hundred Acre Wine Group. So now we used to have just Hundred Acre Wine, which is still obviously our flagship and what we're known for. But we also have two new brands. One's called Fortunate Son. And one's called Summer Dreams that are new projects that we've been working on for the last several years that are just coming out. So now we get to be officially a group, so a super group, maybe that's the way to think about it. Oh,
2: exciting times. Awesome. Before diving into those, can you give us a little background on just quickly how you got into wine and then your path to 100 Acre?
0: Yeah, I, I laugh now and I think my parents laugh that I get to run one of the highest and most prestigious wines in the world because we grew up with no wine. We're a meatloaf, tuna casserole, Budweiser, king of beers kind of house. And so as I started to get into food and wine, they were just found it so bizarre. They still do. I started my career actually in Las Vegas. I was dating a girl, I'm from Southern California. I was dating a girl who lived in Las Vegas and I moved out there for the summer and her father helped me get a job at, at Spago. And Lupo, working at some of Wolfgang Puck's restaurants out there, didn't know anything about food, didn't know anything about wine. The first night there, they were saying, they said, oh, we have a frise salad. I've never heard of frise before. Confit, never heard of it. So I was like, I was like a hillbilly or something. It was like Beverly hillbillies. But I, as I started to understand more about food and wine, it was really interesting. People wanted to talk to you about it. At the tables and beyond, it's like they don't talk to you about their steak. There's a story of the pasta, but with wine, it felt really conversational, and that was something that I was passionate about. I ended up studying to become a solier and was a wine director in Vegas and in Long Beach, LA area. And then I started my path. I went to work out in France. I worked out in Italy, and I just decided that I think you know this was a passion for me. And twenty now twenty one years ago. No 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds are getting in the wine business. Like Nobody was drinking wine. I was this young buck who was like, who's all excited about wine? Everyone else was maybe drinking Zima. That was as close to a wine as, (laughs) as they had gotten. And yeah, as I moved from being a sommelier, I started working for wineries and I realized that my passion was not buying wine or critiquing wine or whatever. It was working with small family producers. It's like they, they put everything on the line, all their money, all their this. And there's so many variables that go into making a good wine, a great wine, or a legendary wine. Some are in your hands or some aren't. And I love that process of working really hands-on with those smaller producers. Yeah, I worked for a few different producers. Chalk Hills, my first one. And then my friend's winery called BR Cone, small family winery in Sonoma. I've been with 100 Acre now for 12 years. So it's been a great journey. Predominantly started in sales, marketing, and brand development. I've traveled 180 days a year. US, 40 countries in export. And then now I'm moving into more of an executive administrative role. So I still do some selling and I still do some chatting like this, but... Now it's lawyers, accountants, city planners. It's It takes a lot of work to get a wine made. Let me tell you, it ain't just great grapes and great fermentations and barrels. There's a lot that goes into it. It's been a fun transition for me as I have gone into my 22nd year in the industry. Yeah,
2: wow. It's very, that's quite the route there. I will say I come from a similar... Background: We are more of a Coors Light household than Budweiser, but that's really cool. And you must have seen so much growth. Just thinking about these smaller producers at the time, I guess when Jason Woodbridge started, it was probably. I know he came in well funded and he had a grand idea, but it was probably something small that's really blossomed into this world.
0: I think it's a common. I think it's a common misunderstanding that Jason came into the wine business like as a rich guy. If you really think about it now. All the high ends. So if you take, we don't use the word cult wine, but if you take the high end, super ultra premium wines in the valley, the Harlands, the Screaming Eagles, the Colgans, a lot of these, a lot of these people came in with money already. They had been very successful lawyers and architects and titans of industry or they were, or the foreign companies. And Jason's really one of the few, the only one that I know that got to this heights, but did it very pick and shovel. Yeah. He had to come in with a couple million bucks, but a couple million bucks doesn't get you very far in the wine business. So it was built very incrementally. We bought a property, we developed it. It took seven years and we bought another vineyard and we started making wine. We didn't even have a winery for the first seven years of the production and virtual wineries are like making wine at someone else's winery that that's now popular today. But back then in the early two thousands, that just wasn't done. It's like, if you don't have your own equipment, then tough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're not here to be your friend or it's just, they need it. It's also just from a functional perspective. You can't, you're harvesting at the same time that somebody else is. They need their tanks. They need their crushers. They need their destemmers and all that. It's, it's all that stuff. So yeah, he came with more humble means, not, not to say in relative terms, and built it organically. And it's been now 20 years of, we just released our 20th vintage. And now, obviously, we're not, we're an overnight success that took 20 years. So it's one of those things.
3: Is it the same things 20 years ago that set 100 Acre apart and allowed it to take, take hold and grow within the region? Are those the same things that you think are setting your brand apart from other premium brands now? How yeah. that change?
0: Yeah. Jason, to give you a little background about him, our Jason Woodbridge, he's our owner and he's also the winemaker. So that's very rare, actually. If you take all of our contemporaries, none of the owner is the winemaker. They have an owner, a consultant, a winemaker, a vineyard manager, vineyard consultants. They have a lot of that. We don't have that. Jason's, he and his wife make the wine and we have the same vineyard manager, Jim Barber, who's he's been working with for 20-something years. So we're a very tight core. And when he started getting into the business, this was in like, he started getting interested in wine in the 90s. And the 1997 vintage was like the vintage where, it was like 94 to 97 was the time where Napa, all of a sudden people were like, oh man, these wines are really good. That's when the term... Cult wine started the Screaming Eagles, the Bryant's, and all those types of wines. And '97 was like the vintage of all of a sudden. Every globally, people started paying attention. So when Jason got involved in that, right around that time, we made our first wine, Kaylee Morgan, 2000. He's not a trained winemaker. He taught himself how to make wine. So he didn't go to school to make wine. So. It's very odd, but other guys are like that too, like Manfred Crankle from Sinequanon, Thomas Rivers Brown. There's a lot now of guys that are really doing great wine, but they weren't taught the sort of like rigor of winemaking. And I think with Jason, what he did in the beginning and what he does now is he goes against the grain very often. He blazes his own trail. A lot of the techniques that we use in wine are very were not used at all, like, we we do a tremendous amount of punch and fermentation on hundred, on our wines the so small 0. 0.4 ton punching ferments 20 years ago nobody was using punchins for fermentation it was too much work it was also too tiny of a an amount of wine but he realized that this make, doing all these individual fermentations these small lot fermentations doing the punch downs by hand it was a very visceral thing it was like he put his face in every barrel And he got to understand that like none of these barrels were the same. Each one of them had their own. Some were fermenting very hard. Some were fermenting very soft, hot, cold, different nutrients, different smells. And he was realizing that these micro-ferments were the secret sauce. Because now when he does the blends, instead of maybe having one or two clones, maybe five or six blocks, he has 80, 90 individual fermentations. And they're slightly different. So he's got like more paints on the palette when it comes to blending. So as opposed to being like a three-piece or a five-piece jazz band, he's got like a hundred string orchestra. And so he's able to really make something that's big, but also like extremely nuanced and very layered. And I think that that's really the hallmark of what he did in the beginning. And he was just asked us recently in an interview. It was like, what are you doing differently now that you were doing before? He's like, nothing. We keep mm-hmm. it really simple. When you come to our winery, it's not like smoke machines and gravity flow and LED lighting. and laser, like It doesn't look like the Starship Enterprise. It looks like a, an Italian shoemaker that does everything by hand. Like The equipment they use is very good, but it's also very hands-on, extremely visceral. And I think that's really the that's what people pay for at this price point they don't want mass production they want something that feels like a piece of art that's a one-off it's never going to taste we'll never make another one of these and i think every wine every barrel and every vineyard at 100 acre really has that it, it's like in the core of its dna
2: yeah wow so just from a nerdy wine winemaking side of thing so he's Those barrels are on the side and it's one of the flat sides just doesn't have its top and he pushes down the grapes. Oh,
0: he's got a punch in. So it's a 500 liter barrel and the bottom has got a a head on it, Mm -hmm. a tail and they're open top. He has the heads off of them, and he's putting the grapes in there and from doing the fermentations in there. And then when the cap, when when it starts to rise up, he's like doing the punch downs by hand, like pushing those caps down by hand. It's very, very gentle and very visceral. Whereas like other... People use like paddles or they'll use pump overs or they're using more like technology. It's a, obviously a paddle's not technology, but it's a little bit more rough, a little bit yeah. more intense. And I think we're it's like kneading the dough. Yeah. Work yeah, it, it a but sense. not like overwork it and to break down what's inside of it. And I think that's really key part. It also makes, it's a very hard wine to make. There's no economies of scale. There's no right. fast way. And I think sometimes there's times that we've suggested the fast way to him and he's like, <laughs> I wouldn't even consider it. That's like spiritually does not align with what we're all about. It's a fun place and very unique in that work, In That, uh, that
2: makes a lot of sense. So for our, our listeners who may not know, when a red wine's fermenting, the carbon dioxide and that's emitted pushes the grape skins to the top. And if you don't do anything, the red wine skin or the red grape skins or black grape skins will sit at the top and then they'll dry out. So it's important to get... To extract color and flavor to push them down and have the wine either flow through them like a pump over, like he was saying, or push down and push down. You want want
0: that that skin contact to be more universal, more throughout the barrel, as opposed to having all this like heavy tannin up at the top or color at the top. And you want it to be nice and smooth in that particular way of uh, distributing that, that the cap and the skins to get that color phenolics and tannins and all those things in the wine.
3: I just found out about the two other projects. Do you think of them as distinct or you might not like the term like second label? No, are, yeah. yeah. Are, are they from younger? Are they from younger vines or are they totally distinct projects? Cause I just, yeah, found out about them and I was like, Oh, I, I didn't realize that they were new. I thought yeah. I just passed over. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about those other two projects.
0: Jason has had other projects over the years. hundred acres, certainly the one that's the most, most famous now, certainly the most accolades, but He's a really creative guy. He's always looking like at vineyards all the time. This is a guy who's probably seen 10,000 vineyards in his life. He's just constantly going and trying to find like the next like pot of a patch pot of gold somewhere out in the hills. You know what I mean? And, And he also, he says, oftentimes when he goes to a vineyard, he doesn't, I'll get to what we're doing, but this is a good to understand why he does these things he doesn't, most people go in the vineyard and they walk in like very, like up and down, they do backhoe pits, they'll do a lot of these different things. Like, he does it all like emotionally. He's like, okay, this is a special place. You know what I mean? He's like, I get this feeling that it's a special place. And he's He doesn't get that feeling very often. So the new projects are their own wineries. They're their own projects. 100 Acre is a singular thing. Jason makes the wines. He doesn't make other wines for anybody else. He's not a consultant. He does one thing. He has one job. All the wines at 100 Acre are a state. So we don't buy fruit from anybody. And then number three, we don't make second labels from 100 Acre. It either makes the blend or it goes in the trash. It's like, we don't bulk it out. We don't sell it to anybody. We don't kick it down to something else because Jason feels like 100 acres is a singular thing. He's trying Mm -hmm. to go for perfect wine. So the new projects, one called Fortunate Sun, is a new Cabernet, Cabernet Red Blend. It's got, it's Cabernet Bordeaux Grape Heavy or Focus, excuse me, project from Napa Valley. That's basically it's Jason working with These heritage farmers, these second, third and fourth generation family farms, these people have been farming in the valley for a long time and they're selling their fruit to other people, but they don't really care about it in the same way. It goes into the tank, maybe good fruit, maybe $20,000 a ton or something, but it goes into a bigger blend and it's just disappeared. And I think Jason felt like that's so sad. These are people that basically are the fortunate sons and daughters, the founding people of the Napa Valley. And so he goes and works with them and we we work with them and we farm their vineyards and our blocks at the hundred acre level now. So now we're going in there and spending 400 percent more in farming costs. I almost say we almost it's like bonsai. We're like in there like (laughs) such a meticulous process. And he started working with these vineyards over like a couple of years. And then after three or four years, he's like, okay, I think these vineyards are ready to make wine. Fortunate Son has a Cabernet called the Dreamer, which is, I would say, younger vines, but vines that we have just started working with. You know what I mean? That have aspirations, that dream of being something bigger one day. And one wine called the Diplomat, that's a, Jason calls a 21st century new American claret. Put that <laughs> on your label, boys and girls. <laughs> And this is sort of his homage to Cabernet Merlot blend, that Claret style wine. He wanted to he wanted to make celebrate Merlot, and we found this unbelievable vineyard of Merlot that's a heritage vineyard, dry farmed, head trained, looks more like a Zinfandel vineyard. And then we make a, a single vineyard Cab called the Warrior. And then we have just bought two properties that will become the estate vineyards for Fortunate Son. One was one of the oldest vineyards; it was the oldest contiguously owned winery in Napa called the David Fulton Winery it was first planted in 1860 the house that was on there it was the fifth house built in Santa Helena so we built that and we're redeveloping it that'll be the home of fortunate son and then we bought another property just right on the border of Santa Helena Calistoga that will become a state properties for this. So Fortunate Sun will be a mix of our state stuff with these sort of partnerships, but all the wines are made at the hundred acre level. The 18 and 19s were made at hundred acre punch and ferments and Oak in the same, same situation. So we've been, we've just launched this wine and people have been going bananas because you're getting just an unbelievably well-crafted wine by a third, the price of hundred acre. And then our other projects called summer dreams. And this is a like Western Sonoma coast project. This is Pinot Noir Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Jason. I always think it's a challenge. It's like Cabernet producers always want to make burgundy grape varietals, and burgundy grape varietal guys like always want to make cab too it's like a chef they want to do it. so he's very good at making pinot noir but this project has been him like really planting a flag out there so we're working with some small guys out there now but we're talking 250 case productions for each one of these wines 300 so very tiny and we're just having fun with it the wines are fantastic but we put them on our mailing list and they sold out in like 20 minutes so there's just not a lot of wine so yeah we've got yeah. a lot going on right now it's a great time to be in the wine business with 100 acre
2: Brady, do you have any follow- ups with that? I know you probably have a million questions about uh, which one you should buy and how you get more? <laughs> yeah I'm glad you can meet me on the
0: mailing list I know a guy <laughs> it's kind
3: of, maybe I just maybe I don't talk about European wines enough with folks here or I should just say French wines, sorry, not European. French wines enough with folks here because I always hear, okay, like six hundred dollars. This is ridiculous for a bottle, although there are wines of. Yeah. Same and caliber and France. That would be like, Oh, give me a case. That's a steal. Yeah. How do you comment on that price point? It's a little bit jarring for some folks, even some of these other labels at two, dollars the dreamer I think is maybe coming in around that price point if I saw correctly, but then you have wines like screaming Eagle two, $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. $3,000 on the secondary market. What's the story that you have people take away from these premium producers out of Napa? Like, how do you yeah. What's the main thesis around this price Point one? I
0: think since the 70s, the Europeans have been, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. We're the new yeah. kid. we were the new kid on the block. And the new kid on the block is like, America, freedom. We don't care about your o- AOCs and your laws. We're blending. We're doing, we got the cowboy vibe. The French, more the French, but I just think the Europeans in general just looked at us like absolute pirates. Just, And that was in the 70s and the 80s. And you know what? They were. These guys were just like going out in the middle of nowhere and planting wine and trying to compete with the big boys. It is very much David and Goliath. And over the last 20, 30 years, I think we've incrementally been raising our profile and just, it's not about quality. We've always had quality, it's like consistent quality. You yeah. know what I mean? When you talk about Latour or you talk about Lafitte or something, they're talking about 100, 200 plus years of tradition. They're like, okay, great. You made five great wines. Hit me up when you made 40 you know what I mean? And so each decade that goes on that we have this really high consistency of quality, it's every year we win, we start to get a little more street cred. I'll tell you this, 10 years ago, I've been managing the global sales for 100 Acre for a long time. 10 years ago, I'd go to England and I'd go to Germany and places with 100 Acre, they would laugh. They were like, get out of here. This is a joke. I literally had a guy in England take a bottle, he was a big importer, and he took our bottle and he, when I in the beginning of our appointment, he rotated the bottle to the back and he saw the alcohol was 15%. He rotated it back and ended the meeting. You know what I mean? It oh, was geez. like that was the meeting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now we're selling UK is our number one export market right now. We're selling a lot of wine in Europe. And it's almost like that Ford. You saw the movie Ford versus Ferrari that Enzo Ferrari was the gold standard. And you got Carol Shelby making Mustangs, and you're, he's made a car that would win Le Mans. You know what I mean, and in the end, it's I think they really are understanding the craft of it. Our process is as laborious, if probably not more. We probably feel like we have more to prove, so we almost overcompensate in a lot of ways. On the price point front, it's been complex, but I will say thank you to the French because and the Asian market because the same Bourgogne Blanc I used to buy is now eighty bucks. The same white Burgs I used to buy or Jerez or whatever are now four hundred bucks. For not even the Grand Cru wines, for Premier Cru's, yeah. Village wines, it's everything's gotten more expensive At that really, cra- if you were able to really be defined as craft, like proper, like the tip of the spear, I think people understand it doesn't matter if you're making Keller, G-Max, or you're making 100 Acre, or you're making or at that level, like the guys that are at the top are really pushing the envelope. And I think whether you like it, you like the wine or not, you got to respect the hustle. And I think we've seen that in the sense that they're asking for the wines. So yeah. that lets us know we've made it. We don't, Jason doesn't give a shit about them in any real terms, but as far as the consumers are concerned, they speak and they've been speaking resounding for us, but it's fun. I love French wine, by the way, you're talking to a guy who's, I, I used to work at France. I love French European wines. And they're just different. A Ferrari is different than a Shelby Mustang. They're both fast. They do it a different way. And they're for like different strokes for different folks. And I think that's what we really embrace. I like so, your
3: comment. I like your comment description of the wine art project, especially when you're going through the just the laborious nature of the winemaking process. I think that, really, that story, when you bring that in, I think starts to, for a lot of people is what adds so much of the value too. It's not just the quality going to be there. Consistency is there. And then the story kind of tops it all off.
2: Yeah, I think... D- yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to add, on, add to that, that the parallel, while it is, the wines are predominantly Cabernet-based for 100 acre, I do think the parallel is more similar to your point to Burgundy, where it is the smaller lots. It's more about the terroir and the effort that's going into making yeah. it. And the fact that you guys can't come expand. You're not going to be expanding the the Vineyard. Vineyards. only so big. Yeah, the yeah, I mean,
0: correlation is much more to Burgundy than it is to Bordeaux. 100%. You know, because Bordeaux, they make a lot of wine. You know what I mean? Latour and Mouton make 20,000 cases of wine. This is not like they're not that rare in relative terms to the production. They're very great wines and they're, they're artistically beautiful and they do a lot of different things. We're more like Burgundy in the sense that we're like monopoles. You want to have Arc Vineyard. You got to buy hundred acre. You want to buy Kaylee Morgan or few and far between, you have to buy it from us. We're not like, even now there's been a real trend in the Na- in Napa. I don't think it's a good trend, but it is it is a trend nonetheless of consulting winemakers. They're making wine for 50 wineries and they're sourcing a lot from the same vineyards. So you see a lot of the same Tocalon, Do- Dr. Crane, a Sleeping Lady. You see these vineyards on 80 different wines. They're all different, I'm sure but they feel slightly less special because there is a sec. I'm out of this one. Let me, I'm out of the r- Dr. Crane from Paul Hobbs. Hey, try Myriad, try realms. Dr. Crane for us. It's like, we get one ride. If you want, if you want to drink, call tart, you get one ride. You know what I mean? And I think that's an important approach. For us. And there is no scale. We're not making second. We're not making more wine and we're not making second labels. We're not like diluting our specialness. when I sell, when I do staff trainings, I tell people if I go owner winemaker, all estate, no second labels, I'll tell me the wines, tell me the wineries in the world that do all those three things. And you'd have a really hard time counting to five. You know, you why,
3: I think that's why wine people get bored maybe with Napa so quickly. Yeah. And they write Napa off as either monolithic or. I, I think we, I mention this every time I can on the podcast. So this is a like perspective that i think that people come to napa valley with which is all these wines taste the same they're all super high at alcohol they're all yeah. extracted and like jammy and fruit forward and i think it's like a massive bell curve and then there's producers like y'all and some of the other ultra premium where are doing things that are so outside of this norm of that's our consultant winemaker like you said that produces 50 other places all of our grapes come from the same vineyards yeah i can't name the number of wines that come from tocolon
0: i know and it's getting yeah. crazier and, and you have to respect beckstaffer for being a genius but now he has Born, he has g3 so he has more vineyards to work with and so there's this i think people chase those grapes because they now know they can they have to justify the price i need to charge right. bucks. that's my mortgage so if I go to Skippy's Vineyard in Calistoga that nobody's heard of before and grind it out to make a 300 dollars wine, like it's a harder grind to get the customer to pay it. But if I put Dr. Crane or Los Piedras or something like that, I get like a into a club a little bit. Free pass. With, yeah. with, fortunate, with fortunate Son, that was really the whole rationale behind working with these family farmers. He's, I could go buy a vineyard on Pritchard Hill. I could go buy Dr. Crane. Or I'm not crapping on those vineyards. The vines are amazing to come from there. Dr. Crane is my favorite, one of my all-time favorite vineyards. But okay, we're going to pay $60,000 a ton. The wine's going to be 500 bucks. You know what I mean? So I think Jason was like, mm-hmm. let me go find some stuff. You know what I mean? Let me go work with things and farm it for several years and earn it as opposed to just going out and getting bling, gold plating a bottle and calling it a grant. You know what I yeah. mean? But you just, it does happen. That's economics. That's capitalism. As a guy who has to run the business, I understand that. But I think that's another reason why Jason's such a trailblazer is he hasn't fallen into that trap. It's a very easy trap to fall into yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
2: On that note. Can you tell us a little bit about the three estate vineyards that you have four hundred acre and then we'll lead that into talking about wraith as a coup and what we have on the vintages in our collection.
0: Yeah. so all we have three single vineyard sites that are estate that are estate properties. The very first vineyard that we that was planted was called Kaylee Morgan. just incidentally for all your for all your folks, if you start to see the name Morgan's Way, on your wines the, as 19 vintage, moving on, it's going to be called Morgan's Way, mm. which is Jason's daughter's name. Has always been their Morgan, but there, he as his his only daughter, so he like elevated this fully for her. That vineyard is a really fascinating site. That's it's along in Santa Elena along the Silverado Trail. It's right at the. In the nook of the beginning of the Hell Mountain range, so it's right before the hillside. Jim Barber, who's Jason's best friend and who's just an absolute genius, these guys need to be like rock star status. The winemakers get the love. The David Abrews and the Jim Barbers and those types of people are really rock stars. Planted this vineyard that used to be a crappy Sauvignon Blanc vineyard, it used to produce like low end average SB because it's a clay soil. And Jim's, dude, this is clay, but this is like Pomerol, but 20 degrees warmer. So he did something very innovative and planted Cabernet there. And Jason, being who he was, is oh, okay. People say don't plant this here. Great. We'll plant this here and then we'll make a badass wine. What he started to realize was <sighs> now you have this aromatic and flavor profile that's now the grapes are grown in a soil that everyone else isn't doing. So the flavor is unique. You get a lot of lilac, lavender, graphite, pencil lead notes. Still wonderful fruit, but you get this almost like a really warm, like a super muscular young warm Latour. You know what I mean? Where you can get those notes in there. That's been that's the beginning for us. And that's which we just had our twentieth vintage. What we've released two thousand was the first vintage there. And then in actually 1998, Jason bought a property, a house and a hillside that ended up becoming the Ark Vineyard, which is our second vineyard, which is where our home is. That's where the winery is and all these types of things. And Jason bought this hillside that surrounded a very famous vineyard by the name of Chabot. Now, if people don't know the name Chabot very well, but in the 80s and 90s, Chabot was like Heights, Martha's Vineyard. Chabot was the core of Beringer's private reserve wine that got number one wine in the world. Bacchus Vineyard from Insignia. These guys were these vineyards that were like early single vineyards that people said, these are like Grand Cru stuff. So this is like on a kind of a slight slope Chabot is. And then ARC is like an amphitheater, 180 degree seating at 30 degree slope all the way around Chabot. So like Chabot is like the stage and on the low side and then arc is just all up and down this hillside 30 degree slope so it's this epic vineyard you don't see wrap around vineyards like that and it has some unbelievable soil components three different beach heads it's like ancient beach heads have been flipped up and turned on their side so you have this like really complex seafloor volcanic pyroclastic soils all mixed up so it's like a you want a geological nightmare that makes great vineyards. That's it. This is it. And then the third wine that we have, the third vineyard, it's called Few and Far Between. And Few and Far Between is now up in Calistoga. And basically, that is the upper slope of the where the Isley Vineyard is. So our neighbor is Isley or Araujo. This is basically the all they at Isley, they don't have any slope. Everything is pretty much more valley floor. We are basically the upslope of all of that surrounding that. So we got like the high ground and Jason renamed it Few and Far Between. Few is his son, Fisher, Everest, Woodbridge. And so those are the core of our brands. You have a clay soil that's more like valley floor in the nook of the hill, a mountains fruit vineyard, steep slope for arc. And then Few and Far Between is more of a hillside vineyard with a lot of like gravel that gets more of that longer sun exposure because you're up in calistoga long an hour and a half more of sun every day than the rest of the valley and so each one of them are totally different we don't we're not we're not cookie cutting we really work hard to make sure the wines we honor the terroir on the site and that's that's been the core of what we've done until now the new wines that we're about to talk about now
2: wow but yeah so just for everybody listening to it doesn't it gets more sun because the fog reaches it later the marine layer that comes in every night reaches it later, right
0: so there's a couple there's a couple reasons. So if you're, people have totalized the Napa Valley, it's a valley, right? So there's a mountain on each side. There's the Vaca Range and the Mayacama Range. The Vaca Range is on the east side. The Mayacama is on the west side. So the more north you go, the mountain goes up and then it starts to dip. And there's a V right there in this Calistoga zone. So when the sun goes down and it goes behind the mountain, like mm-hmm. behind like Oakville, It's still getting sun because that V, I'm doing a bad job of this, that V cut allows for the sun to peek through into the site. And that open, then also opens up the Chalk Hill Gap and the marine layer to blow it in. As Calistoga is warmer than the rest of Napa, it's also colder. At night. So you get that really strong diurnal temperature swing. And that's a real part of the terroir that I mean that that's why when Bart found this vineyard Araujo den in the eighties, this is the bomb. And so early on that it was identified and Jason just fell in love with the site and just wouldn't take no for an answer. So
2: wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I didn't know. I've been yeah, I've been studying for one of these wine exams coming up my, my d3 one and I, there's a few regions where they specifically talk about the shadows from certain mountains so yeah. i was like curious actually to know if that was part of the case that's really cool
0: yeah uh, I'm let the marine layer get in right the jet stream get in and if a mountain is there it's going to block it so you don't really get a lot of maritime influence in oakville or in that center zone of the valley the heart of the valley you got to go south like carneros so where it's cooler and you're getting that san pablo bay Petaluma Gap kind of jet stream or more north where you start to get that Chalk Hill Gap. And so you're on two different poles here.
2: That makes a lot of sense. So tell us a little bit about the so Wraith. We have four vintages of Wraith that we're going to be featuring in our collection or five actually, five vintages of Wraith. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how that wine came to be and what makes it so special?
0: Yeah, Jason is a crazy son of a gun and I from a thousand ways, but from a winemaking perspective he's what i love about him is he's not stagnant he's a lot of times people make single vineyard wines one varietal and it's kind of like, okay we make that's what we make and i think he's always been on a quest to understand his vineyards better and understand the blocks and how they're reacting and i, I think he always he had a vision in the late 2000 like 2008 2009 about blending the wines and taking blocks and selections from Ark and Kaylee Morgan and making a wine. And the problem was, is he, if you're going to blend it, it's got to be better than them together in his mind. Because think about this, people don't blend down. They don't blend up, excuse me. They only blend down. They blend the second tier and they blend it. Why not even in Burgundy? You wouldn't take Montrachet, Bâtard Montrachet and Chevalier and blend it. That would be, you'd have the most expensive Bourgogne Blanc and you'd 80% of your wine would turn into devalue. Even if the wine was better, they don't allow, the same in Napa. You don't take your best Dr. Crane, your best Las Piedras, your best Missouri Hopper and blend it up. You go, oh yeah, we make a single vineyard, and here's our Napa blend. And Jason I said, that felt real dumb. Why would I not take barrels from and picks and blocks from my different vineyards and be able to do something more? And when he bought Few and Far Between in two thousand and eight, now he had a valley floor vineyard, a mountain vineyard, and a hillside vineyard. So he had a lot more material, and he started taking barrels and blending them and seeing what was going on and trying to make it work. He always says he felt like he was like cracking a safe. There was like three or four hundred dials, and he's like turning it and trying to see if like he could make something that was like as good, if not better, but its own thing. And so the Wraith was really a labor of love. It was something he worked on for 10 years of mess- working with these different sites. And so 2013 was just a banger. That's a vintage that will definitely go down as... It's, a ba- it's great for wine people because 12 and 13 were both good. Like a lot of people like 13. I'm more of a 12 guy. 12 was more like structured and more classic. 13 was like very hedonistic wines in general. But once he took the three vineyards and he put them together, he's like, he always makes a joke. It was like, like the dials all stopped, and all of a sudden the vault opened. It was like and the wraith is not it, what's cool about it, aside that it's this you it's unique, is every vintage is unique. The arc will taste arc-like every year to some degree. It's a single vineyard wine. The wraith is a different combination of percentages of vineyard, blocks, picks, punchins, oak, all these different things every year. And so when we first started to release it, people didn't understand it. They were like, is this a a reserve? Is this a second label? Is this a, they just couldn't wrap their brain. about. So is it more expensive? Is it more? So it was like for a year, I was just like trying to like, now when I tell people to go, oh, that sounds great. That's genius. In the beginning, people just totally didn't get it. And so what Jason's done is now, he says is you can be in three places at once. You're in three of the vineyards at one time. You're getting a one plus one plus one equals 10 sort of approach. And then from a winemaker's perspective, isn't it better to be able to have different barrels from different sites that have different components so you can make a a wine that's more elevated? So 13, 14, 15, 16, four vintages in a row, of 100-point scores from Parker. If you were to taste those wines, they're not the same at all. They're like four totally different rides. And I think that now people have just gotten like, very into it because it's like christmas when the new release comes out you're like oh it's a good vintage or a bad vintage of arc or kaylee or different what's the new thing you know that's happening and i think not only is the quality fantastic but the consistency is just off the charts because he's got more he's got more like a bigger mise en place more ingredients or more things to cook with make a more dynamic wine And it's been fantastic.
2: Yeah. Now, we actually recently had Lisa Parati brown on to talk about her tasting approach. And I think in her review for the 2013, she wrote that the race set a new bar, a new standard benchmark for what 100-point wines were. So that was... That was really interesting to hear and just read through as I'm like reading about these wines and prepping the materials for our collection.
0: That wine too was like the first year, the 13, when we released it, the 13s were our very big wines. It's just the vintage. It's the big fruit, big tannins. just really awful, opulent wines. And the 13 Wraith was a little more subtle for a moment, I think. And people were like, oh, and then about nine months to 12 months into the release, this wine was just like, like fist pumping in the club like it was like i am here to go and it just became one of the most dynamic bottles we've ever made as far as like just this evolution in the bottle and one of the other secrets to this is the wine is also they're aged longer so we're aging this wine i I think that wine was aged for 44 months Mm. in oak and so the wraith is generally aged another year more than the single vineyard wines, to create more, give time for it to integrate and build complexity. It doesn't affect the oak flavor at all. It's really about like more time in the jacuzzi and like more time for integration and just a little bit more concentration in the wine. And that's really been a secret to our success. Wow.
2: So the 2013 was the first vintage or was there a 2012 yeah, 13, as well?
0: 13, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, he made it in 12, he made it in 11, he made it in 10. It just never... We drank it. You know what I mean? It just never, he wasn't ready to say, plant the flag on a new wine.
2: I'm still, my mind's still going about that blending up approach. Never thought about that. I really like that. And it makes a lot of sense of why this wine is consistently scoring so high. I've noticed a couple while doing my research of called, one called like the Dark Wraith or some other different dark like, arc. bottling yeah. arc as well uh-huh. or there might be a different race sorry i don't know if that was there's another name but a few alternate names what are those are they just like sub or little
0: projects that he's having as he's which you're probably mm-hmm. really talking about is we have one called wraith crypt oh crypt sorry yeah, yeah. So these yeah. are all like, I guess they're all dark sounding or it's or like Norwegian death metal or something like that. Or maybe we're more like Iron Man guys that did Iron Man, not Ozzy Osbourne's band. Oh, be a black Sabbath. Black Sabbath. We're probably more like black Sabbath, like down tuning and like a lot of like that. But what these are basically now, Jason taking specific blocks, barrels, picks out of a single vineyard and then doing something with that. So he's like, Riffing, he's not staying static. He's trying to do new things, and I think for him, because we do all these micro fermentations, we since we isolate all these picks and blends, we can do that later and do unique kind of sub wines. Do five barrels, two barrels, three barrels. The Dark Arc, which is a small production block of the Arc, we've only released the fifteen and the sixteen. It is so good, but it's like dark. It's a darker flavor profile. It's not. A more high alcohol or more sweet, like more fruit or anything. It has just like the f- aromatics and the fruit is like a darker, like more blue to black kind of in those flavor profiles, and it's really fun. People love that. They love those small production wines from this.
3: There's vintages in this collection that we have. You touched on it, but 13 to 16 are just I'm, a stretch of incredible vintages. I'm, it sounds like maybe we might get something similar on this other side of 2017 with 18 to 22. Yeah, and I've heard only a little bit about 22 so far, but 18, yeah. 19,
2: really good so far well, out of the gate, I think. Yeah, I was say, even that in 2017, when a lot of the producers in the region struggled, you guys still got 98 plus points, whatever that you know plus means from Wine Advocate. And there was only 100 the whole year. So you guys were still one of the top wines in all of Napa. Yeah, rare, rare opportunity. and. In- California as a whole
3: to find that like that off vintage where you might be able to get some like really strong. uh...
0: Before she left, that's totally true. Before Lisa left to start the wine independent, we were her last tasting. She came and she tasted and went through everything. And I think Jason's proudest moment was the top three highest rated wines of the vintage. We had two of them in seventeen. He's like, that's the winemaking right there. He goes, that's yeah. where you got to grind. He's like, he was more proud of the Wraith Crip got 99 and the Wraith 17 got 98 plus. He's like, I don't even know what plus means. <laughs> Are we doing minus now? But he was like very proud of that. And I think Lisa was really impressed because... yeah it's dude what you do in 16 and 13 you yeah you better make great wine okay god gave you this stuff it's what you do in 17 what you do in if you're in the road and you're in like oh two you're in certain areas where you know or you have tough years in burgundy it's like those producers that make great wine and tough things it's not about great quality it's about extremely high quality consistently all the time, every time. That's what makes you an icon. That's what makes you Michael Jordan. That's what makes you Tiger Woods. That's what makes you Serena Williams. That's what makes you Jason Woodbridge or, or Manfred Kringle or, or any of these other top producers is they've been doing it at a high level for a really long time.
2: Awesome. On that note, how is this vintage looking? Is 22 looking pretty sharp?
0: Oh my God, 22. It's like you get this good news, bad news thing. Okay, there's no fires. Okay, great. <laughs> That's a very good piece of news. We have no twenty twenty. So just from your, let me say this because I think it's important and then we'll talk about 22. Your investors that are looking to invest in this collection, we have no 2020. Our supply is crazy low. It's the lowest it's ever been. And so that's driving demand. Our demand has been really high. And with this collection, this is an ager. This is one that's definitely we wanted to, we wanted to do this. And we I batted around a little bit with like, all right, if we're gonna do it. Let's do it. Uh, 22 was a fabulous vintage. It ended, by the way. I'm not gonna say anything negative, but it was challenging in the sense that it we had the hottest week in the history of Napa Valley in the second, first, first, like just after Labor Day. For two weeks, you had two days that were 116 degrees. You had some vineyards that got up to 117. It was 102 at night, at nine o'clock at night that day. That is hardcore. And you had vineyards that were picking September third, that had picked October third the previous year. Yeah, That's wow. not good. That's not good. You may have got. Jason said he goes fantastic. You got to your bricks level are your seeds brown? Are your phenolics there? Did the grapes ripen or are they just sweet? You know what I mean? And so that was something that he, you know, he would wait. And then after that, it rained like four inches of rain. So we had this like super heavy heat and rain. But as this coughs to Jason, he's like, we don't, we don't take the cake out of the oven before it's cooked all the way. So we waited through all of that stuff. And we got a banger vintage. We really are impressed with the vintage. But I think it'll be interesting. It'll be a vintage where I think you're gonna see some variation. That's a vin- I never asked this from anybody, but I would ask, like, when'd you pick? And you get people in that early September for Cabernet. That's I'm only speaking Cabernet, by the way. That's complex. That's that's gonna be very difficult to make a wine that's extremely complex and has a lot of dimension.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yet, to your earlier point as well, these are these wines are coming directly from your library. And it, there's some of the, especially for some of the older wines, some of the last cases you guys have yeah. um, in the library, right?
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. These are, we've had so much. When a wine gets like a 100 point score and then a second vintage and a third and fourth, there's people are like piling on. And we don't really play the game. We don't, if you've been with us for a long time, if you've been working with us, if you've been supported us before we were anybody, we don't just like, you know, just give it out to everybody. We try to be as very fair about things. And so we're not like hoarding this. We sold these wines out. We wanted people to take them in their cellars. We They were being drunk in restaurants. And so our supply of it is the lowest among anything that we have, as far as that was concerned. And so that, that was also a factor to get something that, Not just what's high rated and delicious and great vintages, but something that we don't, we're not sitting in, sitting
3: on. So you have obviously looked favorably upon this kind of investment space in some way, but not every producer does. Not every producer would be willing to have a direct relationship with an investment firm and sell their wines into that space. We, I think we think of ourselves as pretty producer friendly and we try to be really accessible to those relationships. But what's your perspective on the role of investment groups or people purchasing wine and selling it back into a secondary market for investment. You think that's a positive thing overall, or what's the kind of perspective there?
0: Look, there's wine selling and trading in secondary markets and tertiary. That's been happening for 3,000 years. Buy wine, they move it, someone buys it, blends it, so all the types of things. I think the internet made it really complicated for buying wine. On They made it easier to buy wine online, but it became this trader system, like I, I had gone to a tasting, a buddy had had a 40th birthday in 82s and he had bought all these 82s of Bordeaux, and they just, many of them just didn't taste very good. And they just, they tasted like tired, you know what I mean? Like way more tired. And you buy them on wine bid. You buy them on this. You buy them on that. They've been traded seven, it's 10, been back and forth across times
3: the ocean. Yeah,
0: Yeah, shipped all FedEx. You think your FedEx driver gives a crap? Sure. That this is a that part has been complex for the buyer. So I think this type of situation creates an environment where the provenance is perfect. You know what I mean? That in provenance in luxury wine is everything. I don't care if it's the greatest vintage and thing. If it's drunk. For an hour, it's done, and so I think for us, we don't. We really try. We don't work with any auction houses. We a lot of wineries sell one. Wine. We don't do that type of stuff, not because we don't know what's happening. We don't know what they're doing. It's been there's a lot of and the counterfeit all the Rudy Kernan crap and all that type of stuff. So we've never done any of that. So this is a way that we can let people invest in our wines and hold them in a sacred space and give them the love that they're that they deserve. But also we can guarantee the prominence of the wine to them because that's really important to us. It's we're interested in we put a lot of work into making these great. And so I think on the investor side of things, it's only direct from the winery once, you know what I mean? And so this is that, you know, we're checking it out. Your CEO's known me for a while, so he buttered my bit. He told me, Landon, you're so you're so good looking. Your beard is good. <laughs> You're glad. No, no, but when you know, he and I told me about told me about the opportunity, I'm an investor. I have I collect wine. I do stuff. So I ask myself the first question: Is this something that I would be interested in doing? And then I answer yes. So then why wouldn't we want to be associated with that? so I think that's a cool thing. I, there won't be a lot of collections from us. That just that's not because we don't love you. It's because we just don't have right now. Our supplies are at the lowest. But I think that just makes each collection that that much more special.
2: Yeah, agree. And I, I think I, to go back to something. you touched on as well when we are storing these wines and this is something we talk with many producers when we're, we're storing their wines it's going to be in pristine condition they're going to be taken good care of so that when they do end up being sold on to the next one it's not like they were just held in some random place or under a bed or something For sure. But yeah, Yeah. thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I don't want to take all of your day here, but I want to give Brady one more chance to ask another Napa question before we go. Do you want to just ask, he's been really investing in, or not investing necessarily, but buying mountain fruit-based wines. Brady, do you want to- I recommend that. I recommend that. (laughs) (laughs) So is it, other than How Mountain, the best place
3: to buy wine from in Napa?
0: Look, if your best is all somewhat relative, I think- the king of mountain fruit oh, is king. your
3: best. That's what I mean. Your best. Our
0: best, you're saying oh, for you personally. Oh, me personally, me personally. I'd say yeah. two things. I'd say two things. If money was like if I could go buy a vineyard tomorrow and own it myself, Pritchard Hill is pretty mm-hmm. damn special. The dirt, the red dirt, all that. Volcanic tufa and pyroclastic in the sun, the aspects of that area. And there's a reason why there's great producers making great wine for a very long time there. But you're paying like buku dollars for that's for sure. Still some great, win- Chapelet has some wines that are still like way undervalued that are extremely good quality from up there. I would, that would probably be my favorite. I love, I'm really getting down on Coombsville, man. I'm really enjoying that. It's that's an area that you, so it's that's in Southeastern sort of section for your listeners of Napa. And been, it was kind of like an area that like nobody cared about. And, and all of us, and there was a couple guys like John Caldwell planted vines there really early. There's a cool Chardonnay, Fela has a Chardonnay vineyard in Coombsville that's just makes banging wine. So that that area is very interesting. It's not so much mountain. There is some mountain, some elevation there, but it has a diversity in Napa that you're seeing more homogeneity with regard to what's being planted. There's a lot more like riffing going on out there. And I think that that that's a really cool area to try new things in Napa Valley and just like The tasting rooms are probably a little more pumped to see you because they're not like on the Silverado Trail or 29. So you probably get, they won't charge you $250 to have a communion's worth of their little wine. They may be like, hey, come on in, have a seat. That's becoming very rare in Napa Valley, I can assure you.
3: Outside of Napa, if you think of Syrah or Pinot Noir, which do you let go and which do you keep?
0: Oof. That's a tricky one. I'm going to a dinner tonight and I'm bringing some Clap Cornas 2016 in Magnum. So I'm a real worker. I will say I'll kick Pinot only because I drink, I love Burgundy. I drink a lot of white Burgundy though. I'd say probably mm. I like white wines with acid and minerality and with reds, I tend to like, I love Cornas. I love Cote Roti. I love that. Cause you can get the fruit in the wines with that, that roasted meats and pepper, white pepper spice and all that. I find that really interesting. And I just have to also say, dude, for 50 bucks, you can get a banging bottle of wine in the Rhone. For 50 bucks, mm-hmm. you get an average bottle of wine in Burgundy now. I've got little producers that I drink that I bring somebody a $30 bottle and they're like, never heard of it. And yeah, and it's really delicious. You still look at even Beau Castel is a hundred bucks a bottle. It's less than a hundred. Chateau Leneur, 80 bucks. So these are wines that are like legends in the area. And they're like, cheaper than a really bad cabin. I would say if I have to pick, I'd, I'll go Syrah and I'll go definitely Rhone Roan Rangers, Roan Daddy style for sure.
3: Nice. You pass the test on those questions. And I I'm a tri- real wine tri- drinker. People. I really like yeah.
0: wine. I have a diverse collection. Yeah. i trick
3: people i say what's the best and i really mean favorite but i tricked them into getting a sound bite but me flying out to to drink wine with you soon then yeah you, man come we, on we down. The right
0: let's do it i got all kinds of i'm going to a night i'm doing one of those dinners tonight where it's an asian restaurant everyone bring a bottle so there's gonna be all kinds of funky stuff here and i always like to tonight i'm gonna bring the corn but i'm also gonna bring a bottle of even Sadie, his wines from South Africa. So he's one of the legends of regenerative farming. So this is a seven white grape varietal average vine age, 90 year old bush vine dry farm from Swartland. And dude, this wine is the bomb, but nobody gets it. You blind this on people, then they're not going to get it, but they're like, whoa, this is really cool from South Africa. So we'll get, we'll be nerding out tonight.
3: Nice. You should check out monochrome and pastor verbals. If you don't know them.
0: Monochrome. I've heard of them, but I haven't
3: heard the wines blending like shannon and sauvignon blanc and chardonnay all together yeah i'm like, like i like really that that's my bizarro, ch- like that's really mine. bizarro stuff they make Yeah, you know, kind of like 110 cases kind of thing and it's just the winemaker who he does the tastings with you when you visit it's yeah that's
0: the stuff Fantastic. yeah i'll check it out man i always appreciate that stuff awesome landon thank you so much for the time we appreciate you coming on all right happy hunting everybody we'll see you on the next one cheers Thanks.
2: All right. That was our interview with Landon Patterson. I hope everybody learned a little bit about 100 Acre and is excited for our collection. It'll be coming out shortly, and we hope everybody is able to get some shares. We'll be back with another episode at our normally scheduled time next week. Cheers.
1: To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at Vint.co. Vint and VV markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular is amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.